Hey everyone, my name is Dave Mellon and I want to welcome you to the Valor Fire Training Podcast. We're glad you're here because this podcast is designed for you, the fire service community, to learn about tactics, training, and culture. In each episode, we'll sit down with influential firefighters to discuss hot topics and current events. Before we dive in, remember that you can find entertaining video versions of each episode along with more on our YouTube channel. Now let's dive in. Hey guys, this is your host, Dave Mellon with Valor Fire Training, and we're here for our next episode of Q&A with Sean Duffy from Build Your Culture. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I'm, I'm great, man. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Uh, we, we got to talk down at Lake of the Ozarks at uh, Revolutionary Fire Tactics at the Lake, and uh, it, was, it was a good time. We had a lot of uh, similar views. We, we had some differing views on some things, and, uh, <laughs> so it was, it was really nice to uh, be able to reconnect and uh, I got a question that came up that I figured you were like the spot on person for that deals with search. So uh, why don't you tell everybody kind of what, you know, what you're all about and where you're from and then we'll get started. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just fireman. Uh, I put my pants on the same way everybody else does. Um, I just been doing it for 16 years, you know, for whatever that's worth. I don't even know if that means anything these days, but um, you know, I just, uh, I have a strong passion for, for firefighting and, and making sure that we do things right and, and really just kind of questioning why, right? The, the question, why, why do we do things? And, and I think that, that that's a little taboo in today's fire service. People think that that's like a negative thing, which it really isn't. Um, if we're telling people they should do something, we should absolutely 100% give them the why. Uh, equally right on the other side, if we're telling them not to do something, then they also need to know why. Um, the because I said so doesn't work anymore. It just that's just not a good answer. So uh, I say all that to say that that's what drove me to start Build Your Culture, right? There's all these problems that arise in the fire service, um, whether it be in the firehouse or, you know, on the fire ground or any of those things that when you really truly look at it and you ask why, um, you really understand that, man, if, if I want to change things, right, if I'm in, if I'm in a situation where nobody really cares, um, they, they don't have a good search culture or they don't have a, a good, uh, whatever you want to attach culture to, um, maybe the culture in the firehouse is just toxic, then the choice is up to you to fix it. Right. And, and it's not going to be something that's done overnight. This is something that takes time, effort and energy to, to accomplish but you got to see it through. Uh, so that's really what that's about. Um, we do a lot of search training just because that's my, that's my passion. That's what I like to do. Um, I've been blessed that I've gotten to do that quite a bit um, on the fire ground. So, um, you know, it's, it's more about sharing my failures um, and successes with people and also sharing the data. You know, there's tons of it. Firefighter rescue surveys out there, which is tremendous. Uh, Brian Brush is doing his uh, research paper now, which is, amazing full yeah. of information you know there's all these things that are available to us so with that i think comes the whole building your culture right staying educated and making educated decisions in your personal life and your professional life um, so that you could really really guide people in the right direction and we can have a bigger impact um, so that's what we do we do a little bit of culture stuff too um, but uh yeah i right now i work for the city of venice in Southwest Florida, it's a three-station department. It's like 18 square mile city. Uh, it's pretty fun. I enjoy working there. I get to work with some awesome people. So uh, that's that's pretty much 
me and what I do in, in a nutshell. That's awesome, man. So, you know, and it's funny that you bring it up because I was just having the conversation with another local instructor here in the Metro. And we were talking about the fact that there are still people out there who are, you know, holding ankles and doing searches and, and looking at survivability profiling. And, and it's just a lot of things that through data and analytics, we have proven uh, in some regard don't work. And so, you know, that the ankle holding for sure doesn't work. But I mean, as far as survivability profiling, uh, there's a lot of myths that people don't know. And so it's so funny to, to, to listen to the different perspectives and hear different perspectives and then bring up the data because the data doesn't lie. No. And so, you know, I, I, I didn't coin this myself. I got it from social media, just like a lot of the other stuff. But when we started taking a piece of OSB and spray painting the latest up-to-date data on where victims are being found, uh, who's finding them, that completely changed how we taught uh, the classes for search because people got to see the data. It wasn't just us saying, do this because this is where we empirically find victims. It's here's the data. And so I love, you know, like what Brush is doing with the uh, firefighter rescue survey and, and all those things. It's just so awesome because it gives us as instructors the ability to use that data to guide how we're teaching. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's like, you know, even outside the instructor realm, if you're, if you're anybody in the fire service, I mean, we're all capable of teaching one another, right. And, and passing knowledge as we should, right. That absolutely. should happen. That should happen daily, you know, uh, multiple times if possible. Um, you gotta be careful what you say and, and what you teach, because that has significant like ramifications if it's not correct. Right. right. Um, validating why we should do something is just as important as disproving why we shouldn't do it. Right. And when you put those two things on the table side by side, you, you get this, this bickering match. Right. And the most powerful thing you can do is say, Hey man, I might not have all of the data. You're right. This data is, is taken from, you know, 1800 something surveys, but you know what, that's what we have to work with. And, and hopefully over time, that's going to increase. You know, the more people we can get on board sharing their their successes or even their failures on the fire ground, um, hey, we need to know because that's how we get that data. You know, and and this is really the first time that we're we're going through like collecting it and, and putting it together, and they're just doing a phenomenal job with that. So, captain, driver, firefighter, senior man, whatever, if you're not up to date on those and you're not educating yourself on what the UL says and, and what they're finding out through their constant studies or what we're able to find out when it comes to targeting search, time of day, like where our victims are most likely to be, percentage of vet rescues versus survivability rates, you probably just shouldn't say anything at all. Because, right. <laughs> you know, I don't say that to be mean, but the information that you're passing along is, is not good, right? right? It's not helping any. Um, you've been in the job for 20 years and you're still searching the same way you did in fire Academy. Good for you. That just tells me that you never took it upon yourself to, to learn how to get better. And the argument can be made that, Oh, I found a victim. So you're wrong. Well, you didn't find the victim because finding the victim happens by actively searching. You stumbled upon the victim by accident. You just happened to hit them. Those are two very different things. And when we look about success, is very much dictated by the amount of preparation that we put into it. 
So if you're not doing these things, you're not reading, you're not studying, you're not training, trying new techniques, like trying to constantly improve things. Maybe somebody took a class and they're coming back to share it with you. If you're not going to be open-minded and accept that, then you're, you're really just driving a wedge. And then when your card is called and that moment happens, you're useless to me because now you're just kind of shooting from the hip, hoping that everything works out instead of arming yourself with the uh, amount of knowledge there is coupled with the tactics that properly pair that together to effectively and efficiently search and make a rescue. I mean, that comes in with everything that it's not just stats and, and things like that. It's also like your knowledge base of our job, right? Like fire behavior, building construction, uh, smoke reading, all of that. What does your first do area look like? You know, and these are things that are harped on, not just by me, but like by anybody, anybody who's pushing this agenda forward will say the same thing. If I'm going to send you into a building, I'd better have a pretty good idea of what is incurring inside that building. Like, yeah, we get it. It's on fire, but that doesn't solve anything. I've watched, I've watched fires go from like a one or a two room, easy, manageable fire to we lose the whole house because people are afraid to make a decision because they don't understand what's happening and they don't understand, well, I'm putting water on this fire, but why isn't it going out? Because they don't have knowledge of proper nozzle techniques or maybe proper pump pressures uh, or, or any of those things. So literally everything we do can make the situation better or can make it worse. And that is up to you. And that's where all of this information comes in. Absolutely. And, and the question or the answer to your question about why the fire isn't going out, it's because 65 gallons a minute doesn't put out house fires. That's, <laughs> that's, that's exactly yeah. why. Yeah. Yeah. So we have this question from Anthony. Uh, Anthony is from Colorado and he sent me a message that said, I work on a truck company and I feel like my crew and I have a very strong search culture, but as a department, there are still those who resist performing a primary search due to survivability profiling or fear of basic building construction. How do you view survivability profiling and the risk versus reward culture? And when I got this, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I did just that. I did just that, man. I was yeah. like, ah, this is going to piss off so many people because it is, yeah. I mean, it's like smooth bore versus fog, right? There, there's this side of the table and then there's this side of the table. And so uh, I know how I feel uh, about this specific topic, but I want to hear what you think, and then we can kind of dive down into some more specifics. Well, first, <laughs> I'll throw this caveat out there that if this pisses you off, good. Maybe you'll do some research. You know, if you don't like what has to be said and, and you want to disagree with it, that's fine. Disagreements can be healthy. Um, but I challenge everybody who doesn't agree with this or, or maybe might question why we feel the way we do to, to do the research and no, I'm not going to do it for you. So don't contact me and ask for where, where is these stats? Like you can do your own research. I'll gladly give you the websites where you can find it, but you can read it for yourself because you need to learn it. You know, um, if you're just given everything, it's easy to go. Yeah. Okay. But if I, if I put it upon you to say, no, no, I, it's important for you to learn. Right. I mean, we do that in school, right. With children or even us in, in our academics at higher levels, we're given homework. We, we sit in a classroom when we're told about things, but we're also given homework to do our own research so that we can truly understand it. And so when somebody comes to us and says, hey, where'd you find that? Or how did you learn that? We can provide them with the right direction to move into, right? So with all that being said, 
I'm just going to come out and say it. I hate the word survivability profiling. I hate it. Okay. And here's why. I don't like terminology, period, because it's so open to interpretation, right? And I understand that we have to call things certain things, and that's fine. But when you're calling something a thing and you make this like term or fancy little acronym for it, you better make sure you know what that means, right? Because I can tell you right now, if I ask you, Dave, what is survivability profiling? You're going to give me a different answer than the next guy. And that's all based off of who taught you that and where you learned it from, right? So some will say, hey, survivability profiling, I'm just coming up. Is someone alive in there and someone not alive in there? I don't know. Well, here's the problem with that. Um, I, I'm going to quote Chief Isaacson on this one because it is like one of the best quotes I've ever heard. Searchability is up to us. Survivability is up to God. So when we're on the outside going, no one can survive that environment, that's not for you to decide, man. The question you need to be asking yourself and you need to be asking it immediately is, can I occupy that space? And if that answer is yes, you need to get your ass inside and do so. Okay. It's literally that simple. If it's good enough for me to operate inside of with bunker gear, I'm going. And we have to understand that, yes, everything on fire is searchable at some point, but we have to like narrow this down of what can I search right now? And when we do that, and we make entry, that becomes entry point. You extend your search out from that location if you're able to do so, right? If I ask you a term like, hey, Dave, what is tenability? Uh, you might have a different answer than someone else, right? The point I'm getting at is why don't we just stop assigning names to stuff and just do our job? And our job is when we show up, we do a 360, right? If we can get that done, you know, I situational dependent, you know, you might not always be able to get that full 360. I get it. But theoretically, we do a 360 all the time, right? At least three sides, ABC, whatever side you happen to come on. When you're doing that, a lot of people stop once they've sized up the fire. You should be sizing up your search effort during that time too, right? Because our modern fire growth, you know, is it's measured in seconds really. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not going to get into a whole like, Oh, doubles and doubles in size. And all. that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, we don't have much time. Yeah. Okay. We don't have much time. And when it's lost, it's lost. And so is anybody in that space. That, that is a fact. So the option for you is find them during overhaul or find them when you can actually make a difference. If we can get to sizing up our search, that's really all we're doing, right? That, that is literally what, what we do. Now we take the data that we've accrued through all the people who are helping us get it. And we say, hey, it is three o'clock in the afternoon. Statistically, my victims are located over here. And, and you go to that spot, right? You're targeting that search now instead of guessing. Like, where are they most likely to be at this moment, right? And there you go. Yes, you take fire into account and all that. And I'm not saying that water on the fire isn't important because it is, right? But our number one priority is search. And it's in my opinion that everything supports the search. Okay, fire attack, they're there to put the fire out. They make the environment better, no doubt about that, right? They reduce temperatures, which is good for our victims too, not taking anything away from it. But what are they doing? If we decide to do a search before fire attack, 
we better hustle because that fire can overrun us if we're not careful and we're not paying attention, right? So how you choose to search does make a difference. And, and the tactics you choose um, when employing that search make a difference. You know, is this traditional through the front door or VES, right? Like, what are we doing here? Understanding that everybody's staffing levels are different. So that also plays a huge role. If we can teach in Fire Academy this acronym that's uh, LIP, you know, at least it was taught to me, which is life safety, incident stabilization, property conservation. Life safety is and always will be number one, hands down. Okay. So yes, hand lines save lives and so does searching. If I have to choose between what I'm going to do first, put water on the fire or search, the questions that I'm going to ask myself and that I feel everybody should be asking is, what needs to happen right now? Is it more important for me to remove the environment from the victim, i.e. fire attack, or remove the victim from the environment, i.e. we're searching without a handline right now because we don't have time, right? This fire is too ahead of us or whatever, or I know they're in there. It's confirmed they're in there. Why wait? Um, so that's my thing. Survival, survivability profiling, I hate it. I think it's garbage. And I got on my tangent. So what's the other part of that question? <laughs> so, so before we get to the other part, hold on a second. Cause I want to, you hit a couple points that I was just like, my spidey senses went up and I'm like, I want to come back to that. So you're, you're absolutely right. And I, and when you talk about data and when you talk about the things in our profession that we have proven, you know, we have proven that putting an exorbitant amount of water on a fire makes it better. Right. Sure. I'm not talking about going and saying, you know, using the Iowa fire formula and going, well, I only need 125 gallons per minute. If 125 minute uh, gallons per minute will make it go away, then 160 will and 185 will and 300 will. So anything above that 125, you're fine. But when we talk about going in and doing a search without a hose line, there are still departments, and, and we just visited one a couple months ago, uh, they adamantly refuse to go in without a, ho a hose line. And their biggest priority is getting water on that fire, which I can't tell them that that's not important. But if you're going to tell me that your hose line is also doing the search, that can't happen. It just, it, it can't happen. You can't have, you can stumble upon a victim, right? You can stumble upon a victim while you're doing fire attack, but to properly search, in my opinion, you just cannot have two people on a hose line going down a hallway and searching each room and trying to find that victim. It's just not going to work. So yeah. you're right, you do have to prioritize. Am I going to go in without a line? Am I going to go in with a line? Uh, or am I going to send two different groups to do those tasks? Uh, and so I wanted to pick your brain on that for a second. I mean, if, if you have a victim and it is a, because I think we're pretty much on the same page as far as untenable, what is untenable? Right. Uh, if it's getting to that point, how do you determine if you're going to break that crew and say, okay, two guys are going to go on this, two guys are going to go on that, uh, and we're going to do search and attack at the same time? Well, first off, we have a terrible habit of just assuming things, right? Um, like I said, everyone's staffing level is different. Where I work, you're showing up with a two-man engine. I mean, that's just reality. So um, you're you're going to have to think outside the box, and you're going to have to train on this. And, you know, 1403, NFPA 1403 has tremendous drills. I mean, that's what everybody uses for ISO ratings, you know. But once we get the rating, like, dude, does that ever continue? And it absolutely should because it's got drills in there on, like, 
establishing a water supply in a certain amount of time, getting water on the fire in a certain amount of time, like all of these things, these benchmarks. So I'll speak to what I know. And what I know is, is two man. If I show up on a fire and my lieutenant's like, hey man, pull a line, but there's search shafts that happen. My first thought is, okay, well, it only takes one of us to put water on the fire. So what's the most beneficial way to do this? And this is taboo. Right. Some people are like, no, interior attack all day. Some people are like, hey, through the window. I'm going to tell you again, situational dependent. If it's you and I showing up to a fire and we're and we're searching, right, like we're going in there and we're getting after the fire, then we're searching on the way to the fire. We're not actively searching like like a search crew would, but we're still going to scan if we can and, and feel around like on our way to the fire because we have to get that line in place. Once that line's in place, man, that search crew, gosh, man, there's nothing to worry about. Yeah, it's so much easier. <laughs> you know, they're taking care of the, the threat to us all, which is the fire. So let them do their thing and we can search. If that's not your reality and you are operating off a hand line, hey, man, get to the fire, start spraying water on it, and then tell your partner, hey, I'm going to search this immediate areas behind us, keep in some sort of contact, all right, visual voice, things like that, radio contact, whatever you got to do. And most of these rooms are small. They can be searched by one firefighter, 10 by 10, 10 by 12, whatever. Um, that's where it comes like knowledge of building layouts, like the construction, your area, tactics. Have you done this? Have you trained on this before? Like, can we affect it? Are we comfortable splitting crews? Like, what's the experience of my crew? Do I've got a guy that's been here three days and then I'm going to ask him to peel off and do a search? Probably not, right? Because at the same time, like as much as we need to save victims, I, we, we don't need to be putting anybody in unnecessary danger, sure, which sure. is what's going to happen if, if the person is untrained, trying to perform a task that they've never done before, right? That is significant danger. Um, so to answer your question, I think you can accomplish fire attack and search at the same time, especially depending on the, where, the, where the fire is, you know, and, and just recently... Um, Chief Reinwald put it perfectly, okay? Why does the front door have to be the mode of entry? Why, why is that always something that we think about? Like if, we're, if we wanna to get to the fire as quick as possible and put that out, get that search underway as quick as possible, the fastest way to the fire might be through the window with a hand line and right there at the fire and then you can do what? Search from there, yep. bam, you just re greatly reduce time. And you know, when UL talks about exposure durations, right? What did you just do for that victim? you decrease their exposure duration, right? And time that they're in that building. So that to me would be a beneficial tactic. So where the confusion comes in is people don't think realistically. They don't think this is my crew, this is what I have, what would I do if I get a fire? Because statistically people are like, well, we'll figure it out when we get there. And, right, and that's right. not the way to do it. You better have these conversations frequently especially if you got a new member on your crew and you're not sure what their qualifications are or what their uh, experience level is yet, <laughs> you want, you better be doing two things, training a shit ton and making sure that those expectations are laid out from the beginning in every possible scenario that you can think of and that, you know, you are physically training. Um, so yeah, fire attack first or search first. Uh, it depends on crew size. Me, I think we could do both simultaneously. I can have my officer or myself keep that fire in check while we get a search underway real quick until we're waiting for more help. That's okay. You know, nothing says that you can't do that. If you happen to ride a three-man engine, well, I mean, you're kind of in the same predicament because your engineer is probably going to be hanging out outside pumping the truck, 
four-man engine I think is ideal, you know, um, because that gives you one nozzle man and two searchers, right? Yeah. So it, it depends on on what you're showing up with and how long it is between people get to you, I think. And then, you know, once you know that, then you figure out a, a, a better way to operate given any situation that you might face. Absolutely. Well, and, and let me ask you this. Have you ever heard of ghost pumping? Yeah, set it and forget it. <laughs> so for, for those of you listening or watching who don't know what ghost pumping is uh i was i had no idea what this was until i came down here uh to kansas city uh and i started volunteering in a in a town just west of uh, the metro and they kept talking about ghost pumping and i'm like what what is ghost pumping and they're like you know like when you set the pump and get everything going and then like there's only three people so you got to go inside and do stuff so you just leave the pump running and you know, they thought it was like the greatest thing when they started putting the water gauges on the side of the mm. truck, the water level indicator. Yeah, they're like, yeah. yeah they're like, oh, I can just look out the window and see how much water we got. But that is some people's reality. And that is, you know, when you brought up talking to your crew and knowing who you have and what you have, um, you know, I have made it very clear as a, as a company officer, like, hey, if we're doing a fire attack, I'm going to peel off and search. Or if, if we have a newer person on the nozzle, I'm going to stay with them and I'm going to have a more senior person go and do a search behind the line. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those things where uh, it's not always definite, but there are so many times. And I, and I talked with uh, uh, Grant Schwabel about this during the um, uh, make it the grab podcast. And I talked to him about a fire that we had back in like 2014 uh, where we pulled that 104 year old woman out of the house and, you know, pulled up, had reports of somebody trapped in the, in the house. Um, they kept yelling that she was uh, older, but I didn't know how old. Um, but just based on the conditions, we went in without a line and we thought we had enough time to get past that fire and get to the victim. And by the time we found her in a bedroom and started coming back down that T hallway, I mean, the whole living room was pretty much involved. So we couldn't go out the way that we came in. We ended up going through into a bedroom uh, and put her out of a window. But, you know, how do you, for, for those of the people that are listening, you know, at what point do you have to come up with the plan A, plan B, plan C, all the way down the line? Because for us, we knew, hey, if we get in there, and we find this victim and we can't make our way out, we're going to dive into a room or a bathroom or whatever we need to do. Um, so do you do that during the 360? Do you do that during... Uh, your entry, when is your ideal time? My ideal time to make a plan and have contingency plans is before the incident happens. And, and I say this, most departments, I know not all, but most departments run EMS calls. And that's fact. Some departments do smoke detectors. They, they install them or they change the batteries. And we are literally in and out of places in our areas all day long, grocery stores, people's houses, like whatever, you know, that's your time to, to get that layout, get those mental pictures and, 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 you know, say, Hey, this is interesting, you know, do a walk around, you know, it's, there's this idea that, Oh, if you're dispatched to a fire alarm, like it's, it's nonsense to, to show up and pull line and do all the things you would normally do. No, man, that's preparation. Like that sets the stage for what happens, not when or not if, but when this thing is going, we, 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 it eliminates the guesswork, right? So yeah, beforehand, you know, and we, I know COVID is kind of a big excuse, but even before COVID, we kind of fell off the, the wagon with getting into 
places and asking, Hey, do you mind if we do a walk around? Yeah. Do you mind if we do this? And you know, something that's really, really beneficial, I, I find, especially for training, you talk about hose line advancement uh, and searches or, or layouts or any of that stuff, man, you'd be surprised when you have a, a, a neighborhood under construction, when you talk to whoever's in charge of that construction site, you say, hey, listen, I want to take my guys down here. I just want to do stretching the lines, you know, get get a good estimation from the offset from the engine to the house and how much how much we're going to need if this, you know, is on fire. Most of those neighborhoods, very few of them these days are custom built homes. Right. Most of them are like what we call cookie cutter communities, which they have a few variances, but they're they're generally all the same, right? Or at least there's there's this a bunch of the same models. You know, it might be three or four different models, but they're they're the same all throughout the whole neighborhood, right? Once you do that, like not only are you seeing how it's built, so there gives you your understanding of the building construction. But go back like when the walls are up and see like, okay, this is what this room actually looks like. This is how it's laid out and understand that in that moment that's empty. So there's going to be furniture as soon as person moves in. Now it's unrealistic to think that somebody who's moving in is going to let you go through their house, but we're not dumb. We know what a basic size beds are. We know what basic size, you know, dressers and stuff are like all that stuff takes up space. So realistically the amount of space that you're in is, is greatly reduced searching for victims and even stretching line, you know, you know, you'll know where your pinch points are, you know, you'll, you'll know, Oh, okay. This, you know, this is how I'm going to have to work through us. You know, it's got a landing here or whatever, all kinds of things you can do. Um, so the second part of that is knowledge from past events, right? You go to a, you go to a fire. If, if you're not learning something from every fire you go to, you're not paying attention. And that's a problem, right? You should always be learning something, you know, from every call we run. And, you know, some of the things that you think might work out well throughout training, where you're like, oh man, this is a solid plan. When that fire actually happens and you go to implement it, you find out really quick if you had a solid plan or not, because it may or may not work. And then you have to do what? Back to the drawing board. You got to go back out, you got to tweak a few things, but you're able to do it based off the experience that you just gained. So those two things together, I think, are my biggest things of, of how I would go about doing that. No, I love it, man. And that's and, you know, you and I had a conversation down at the lake and I told you that story. Um, and I've said this about a lot of different things. But Chris, the guy that um, made that grab with me, you know, we had trained and trained and trained and trained on if we get in there and we can't make our way back out, this is what we're going to do. And so there was very little conversation between the two of us we just instinctively knew as a crew, like this is what we're going, you know, this is our plan B, plan C, plan D. And I directly attribute how easy and how well that rescue went because of the fact that we had done our planning ahead of time. And um, so, you know, for those people that don't, and I will add this in for the people that don't um, take the time to, you know, do the what ifs, you know, go through the neighborhoods and do all that stuff. Um, I think it's really, really important for everybody to be on the same page. And, you know, we've had situations in the past in the fire service where people went in to do a search, things started going south really quick. And now everybody's trying to figure out what to do. And that's where you end up with, you know, somebody's on the third floor, somebody's on the second floor, somebody's bailing out the back, somebody's running out the front door. Mm -hmm. Everybody's on a completely different page. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I do absolutely agree that it's something that has to be discussed. So if you're not discussing it, um, start doing that, 
you know, start, start doing that around the kitchen table, start doing it on medical calls. Um, my department actually has just started doing, um, you know, just walkthroughs of businesses in our district and they're super cool about it, man. I mean, you call you tell them like, Hey, it's not an inspection. We're not here to bust you for anything. We just want to see what the layout of the building is. Uh, and so we get to go in there, we get to look around, we get to see what stuff's there. You know, we just found out the other day, there's a commercial business where there's somebody sleeping there. There's a bed and dresser and TV and refrigerator. We're like, Hey, what's up with this? And they're like, well, you know, every once in a while I work late and I don't want to drive all the way home. So I just sleep here. Well, it's really good information to have. Yeah, that's, that's tremendous. And, and that brings me to a, a little sidebar on this whole thing is, just because you see it once doesn't mean it's going to be the same, right? People change. Uh, they have family that moves in, like whatever financial situations change. So we have to expect that we can find victims just about anywhere these days. Um, you know, places that should not be living spaces are being converted into living spaces, whether that be legally or illegally. And it's just, it's crazy, right? And I have a slide in our presentation that, you know, if you're doing a proper size up, you can identify that space almost immediately from the outside because it has a uh, AC unit hanging out the window, but it's an attic space. Yeah. Well, what does that tell you? Like, okay, there's an AC unit there. So that's probably space people occupy, right? Somebody obviously wants to stay cool. They're not just cooling their attic for the hell of it, right? And when you flip the slide, what you find in there is there's actually a latch that's held up by a string and a little clip that goes up and over on a pulley, right? You have to get through it or get to it from stairs, like uh, like pull down attic stairs, right? There's five beds up in there, right? And, and I understand that like the attic is probably not the place that all of us are thinking, but that just gave you the clue like, hey, I should probably check this space. And we just let that stuff go so if you were at the house before and you didn't see that, and now you return to that same house and you see it, what does that immediately tell you? Things are different. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I would say like one of the things I hate is, oh, well, if we're at, if we get like our, our main grocery store here in Florida is Publix, right? Oh, if we get I've a, heard of it. Yeah, that's great. They got awesome subs. Um, you go in there and you're like, oh, Publix is on fire. It's three in the morning. There's probably nobody here. Well, you can't say that. You can't say that because there's people stocking shelves overnight, right? That's what they do. There's people cleaning the store overnight when nobody's in there. That's what they do. Um, sometimes people go into work early to prep, depending on what their day looks like. Um, there's also offices. There's a stairwell that goes to offices that overlook the, all the like aisles and stuff. So what if somebody had to get a budget in or, or maybe they had to put an order in or whatever and they decide to get into work early that's not normal business hours? We're just going to assume that because it's a grocery store that there's nobody in there and we'll just go defensive immediately. That's like the worst thing you can do, yeah. right? And I'm not saying like dive in before you have a plan, but you should always be thinking in your mind when you show up to a fire of any kind, victims, end of discussion. Yeah. Because it's not it's not vacant until excuse me until we say it's vacant, and here's the problem: vacant is a post-search term. Okay, if I'm going to roll up to something, right? We talked about how I hate terminology. That's a perfect one: vacant, abandoned, like unoccupied, like all that garbage. No, that's not true. You talk to some of some of the guys that work in the city of Detroit where they get vacant fires all the time and they find people in there pretty pretty often. 
right? That's just the situation. So vacant houses don't catch fire, unoccupied houses, whatever you want to call it, don't just catch fire by accident. Either somebody set it on fire or there's a vagrant in there trying to keep warm or cook their food or do whatever it is they're doing. So you have to assume that in any structure, it's it's occupied. Now there's also um, like transitional houses, right? Which are in the process of being bought or sold. And when when that happens too, like you can't just assume that nobody's there either. Right. Right. Maybe somebody's working late and they did just go there to crash and they're like, I'm just going to crash here because I'm going to get in the morning and I got to pack or I got to unpack, whatever the situation is. You show up and the neighbor's reports say what? Oh, they, they sold that house last week. Yeah, that might be true. They may have, but that doesn't mean they're not still there or that the people they sold it to didn't come in to try and get a head start on some stuff. So um, those are just some things that I would consider. Yeah, you know, well, and I know that you guys don't have to deal with this right now uh, down in Florida. And I'm not picking on you, but I'm picking on you. So with this huge uh, ice storm and freezing weather that we've had up here in the Midwest. Oh, man, that must be brutal. Oh, it's horrible, you know, as you're hanging out on the beach and, you know, doing all your <laughs> stuff. But, but you know, there was I was just reading an article. I, I'm pretty sure it was down in Oklahoma, but somewhere here in the Midwest, uh, there was a furniture store that opened up their doors to people that didn't have power. And so they, this store happened to have power. And so they said, like, we have a ton of beds. We have a ton of couches. Like, if you need a place to sleep, bring your family, bring your kids, whatever you need to be able to do. Um, they were doing it as a public service. And, and I love that. And I'm hoping and praying that there was some sort of communication with the city leaders and the notification of the fire department, because that is like my worst nightmare. Like, think about that for a second that you have, you know, two or 300 people or not even two or 300, maybe even just like 50 or 100 people that go into this furniture store who are sleeping there at night and three o'clock in the morning, you get an automatic alarm and roll up and there's fire coming out. You know, how many people would sit there and be like, it's a mattress store. I'm sure there's probably people sleeping in there. None of us, none of yeah. us would think that. Yeah. So, well, we go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I mean, that's just, and that's just it, man. I mean, it's, it's, I've had that drilled into my head for years now. Um, that, you know, the building is not vacant until you have searched every inch of it and you know that it is vacant. That, I mean, that's the truth, man. And I mean, sometimes you're not going to be able to do anything. And I totally get that. But we've got to get off this like train of calling shit that it's not like fully involved when really it's like 25%. And if you're really crappy at estimation, like a lot of people are, are really crappy at math, just state it what you have simply. I have two rooms going. Period. Plain and simple. Because when you show up and you don't know what to say and you don't know how to estimate because nobody ever taught you math or whatever the issue is, what you're going to do is you're going to say something that's going to cause everybody else to slow down their sense of urgency. Because I'll tell you exactly, I'm guilty of it. When I'm going to a fire and I hear, oh, we're on scene, it's fully involved. I go, oh, crap. All right, whatever. And I just, because I know that that tells me what? I'm going to sit outside, which I don't want to do. I want to be inside. And I'm going to be there for hours just spraying water from the exterior and cleaning up a bunch of rubble, right? Right, right. Then you show up and you realize really quickly because you're taking your time getting from the truck and everything because it's fully involved. Oh, crap. There's searchable space here. And they're still operating on the exterior with a hand line when that hand line should be on the interior protecting the space that's still searchable, Right. 
that's not uncommon. So words have have power, man. And I mean, when you don't know what to call something and you say it, that causes confusion. I think that's what what uh, was it, Anthony. That's what he was trying to get at. There yeah. is. And the other side of his thing, I think the other part of his question was what? What's risk versus reward or something? Yeah. So he said, uh, I'll just read the last part of that question. So it says, how do you view survivability profiling and the risk versus reward culture? All right. So do you got that slide I sent you? Yeah. Let's put that up for a second. All right. All right. So, um, First question is, I ask anybody, oh, well, my camera turned off. Yeah, okay. First question I ask anybody is, what is risk? Because going back to what we talked about, if I ask you, David, what's risk? And I ask your chief what risk is, or I ask a firefighter what risk is, it's all gonna be different based off of your comfortability, your level of training, your experiences, all of it, right? So the, the question is like, what is risk a lot to save a lot? We hear that all the time. Risk a lot, save a lot, risk a little, save a little, right? That's, that's, I hate that. And I have been guilty of using the risk versus benefit analysis. I mean, I even wrote it in my article for fire engineering. And the more I, after I wrote that and, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about the word risk, I'm really, really thinking, and I don't wanna say it's a terrible word because it does have some meaning. And just like anything else, what's the meaning to you, right? Like Chief Isaacson, it's worth the risk. 100% follow that. I stand behind that. But I know what the, I know what he's getting at. You know what I'm saying? Some other people would sit, maybe say like, well, what's the risk? Well, what, you know, they're, they're just not following it. So the question is like, what's risk a lot to save a lot, right? Is it second degree burns, third degree burns, death? Like what are you personally willing to risk for a savable life. And we have to assume that when we show up, you know, and we can occupy spaces that there may very well be a savable life in there. So to say risk a lot, save a lot, I think sets us up for failure because we show up and it's easy to do this. No, no, we're not doing that. It's too dangerous guys. Don't no, pull the lines, this exterior fire. And so we get handle on this thing and then we'll go in and we'll search. Well, guess what? That's too late. They're dead. Anybody that was salvageable and had a possibility of surviving is, is no longer, okay? And when you look at airway studies and things like that, um, 187 degrees for 20 seconds, unprotected airway, done, mm -hmm. right? So where are we going to find our victims? Maybe on a bed, a couch, a floor. So that's really my level of concern. And um, if you bring, can you bring that, that picture back up yeah. for people? That, why I say that's really my level of concern is because of this. That fire, I can promise you, is not all the way down the floor, right? When we have fires with high exhaust points and things like that, you have to understand that there's still a good three to four feet below that. That's probably what we're able to search. So what, what is the, the choice that we make? Do we go up that full fully involved and we we like skip? Uh, you can leave that bigger if you want to. Yeah, I was gonna um, say you're kind of you're skipping. Like, do we skip it picture. or do we say, hey, yeah, screw that picture? <laughs> uh, do we skip it 
and possibly skip the victim? Or do we use our common sense and say either A, I can access that same room from the next window over, or B, I have a hand line. Let's support the search effort with water. Right. Let's dump some hose or let's dump some water through that window while they're searching and take care of the problem, which is also going to do what? Reduce the heat and all that other stuff, like blah, 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 right? So that, when I ask everyone when I pull up that picture is, is this firefighter risking more than someone who's showing up to a fire and shooting from the hip? Because I promise you when he made that decision, he calculated it very carefully and he knew what his abilities were. He's been in a similar situation before. He's not just taking windows and jumping through it to be a hero, right? He's educated. And he's like, I have this much time to make this rescue happen if it's going to happen. And instead of choosing to write them off because of a risk versus benefit analysis, he said, screw that. The risk is me doing what I said I was going to do. That's the risk that everybody expects, right? So um, to me, the person that's in, in the most danger and the danger to everybody else on the fire ground, including our victims, is the one who's just shooting from the hip. Oh, figured out when I get there. Ah, things are going crazy. Fire's big and scary. I don't know what to do. And you're not making any decisions and you're hiding behind survivability profiling, uh, risk versus benefit analysis, whatever you choose to, to attach to that. Um, you know, and, and that, that's how I feel from it. So you know, if you want to, I would question the people who, who want to do this like risk aversion culture. Like you're never going to avoid risk, dude. Like it's just not going to happen. You, you make decisions literally every day that assume a certain level of risk, right? When I put my boots on and I go to work, that's a risk. When I get behind the wheel to drive to work, that's a risk. When I walk to my mailbox uh, in my neighborhood and their cars drive by, that's a risk. When I'm driving on the highway, that's a risk, right? Everything. I go to an EMS call, that's a risk, right? All of it. So I, I, I just think that we have a tendency to see because it's cool and catchy and, and somehow like People listen to it and they go, oh, that makes sense. Well, no, it really doesn't. Because if we can't agree on what a word means, how can we tell somebody to do something using that word? So if I don't, if you and I can't agree on what the word risk is, how can I make an SOP to tell somebody risk a lot, save a lot? I don't even know what that is. And how can I expect everybody to follow that same guideline if everybody's view on what's acceptable is different, Right. I, it's just not gonna just not gonna happen. So, when that firefighter gets out of the window, the next question is: is uh, do do we do we find that success failure? Right? Did did he risk? Sure, he did. Sure, but he knew that, right? Is that success or failure when he comes out with or without a victim? Well, some people will say if he comes out with a victim, it's a success. I'm going to tell you it's success, period, with or without one, because he did his freaking job. He gave, if somebody was in that room, he gave them every chance of survival. And we have to understand that a picture like this is meant to spark conversation, right? We don't know what happened on that fire ground unless we were there or happened to know somebody who was this is a snapshot in time. So it's easy to make that argument too, that that fire blowing out could be after the search is done. And those conditions may not have existed initially, 
right? But you're going to have the keyboard warriors get on here and be like, I can't believe he's doing that. That is so risky, like blah, blah, blah. Whatever, man, you just don't understand it, right? And and that's that's really the point. If we're properly trained and we're properly equipped with the knowledge we'd be having, we're going we're gonna to be just fine, you know? I can guarantee you that we're at more of a risk from firefighters dying or getting injured on the fire ground from people that don't know what the hell they're doing than we are from firefighters that occupy space that actually know what they're doing. Yeah, and no, I, I 100% agree with that. You know, I'm saying so. It's like, you know, it, I don't mean, it's it's like back to the same same thing. Like we we see that argument, and and Mike Galliano is a good friend of mine. I think he's awesome. He has go or no go. And if you if you watch some of those things, the comments that people make are just asinine, man. You're just like, what? They want to like talk about like all this crap that does not matter. And, and really the whole premise behind that is to get you thinking like, what would you do? What is your plan? That's all it is. But yet people are like, if you go in that fire, you're an idiot, but there's plenty of searchable space. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. The, the thing about fire too, is it just looks big. And when we're doing all these things, our eyes naturally want to track towards light. So it's, it's distracting. You got to stay focused, put a little water on a fire. I promise you it's going to do what it's going to go like this, yep. right? Because that's what it's supposed to do. So don't, don't let what it appears like from the outside dictate your actions of what you're going to do on the inside, because those are two different things, right? What's happening on the exterior is a one dimensional view versus what's actually occurring on the interior. And when we're talking about people like closing their doors, that's what we're preaching literally. And we have the data from you all to back that up of why that's like such a good thing. It's, I, I can't exactly remember the, the number. I want to say it's like 28% now, but be, last time I checked, it was 18%. 18% of the time or 28%, according to the new study, victims are being found behind closed doors, right? Okay, cool. So what does that tell you? For me, it tells me one, it's worth going inside and checking those spaces because from the outside, it can look really terrible, but behind a closed door, it's survivable, sure. right? It, it's Hey, that's a survivable space. It talks about air being at like 18%. Well, 21% is what? Normal air that we breathe. So, hey, if you're telling me that closing this door gives them 18% chance and drastically reduces the temperature of the fire by like upwards of 900 degrees, plus 28% of the time they're being found, they're listening. They're listening to our message and they're listening to what we're preaching. So why do we think it's acceptable in any way, shape, or form to show up and just write them off because of what it looks like from the outside? That's garbage. Like we can't we can't be doing that anymore. Absolutely. I don't know. I just think how do you tell a citizen? And I want everybody to think about this, like how do you tell a citizen that their loved one or or you know, maybe their neighbor or something like that? is not worth the life of a firefighter. If they didn't need you, you wouldn't be there, right? Like you're not there by accident. They called because you said you'd show up and you would handle this emergency and that you would put yourself second, right? And that they come first. So how do we in good faith, when we're talking about morals, in any way, shape, or form, 
kid ourselves to think that is it acceptable when there is a great chance to save a life that we choose not to. Yeah. And that's something that I think everybody needs to take a second to reflect on. I think, you know, when we talk about survivability profiling, when we talk about risk versus reward, we talk about it, it is so important that people understand that what that house looks like, what it looks like when we show up, we have the tools and the knowledge and the experience to be able to change that. And, and I don't think that that gets factored in a whole lot that, yeah, when I pull up, there may be fire blowing out of three windows and through the roof, but I have the stuff to make that better and I can actually make it better and go get the victim or at least find them and give them every opportunity. Not to say that they're going to live every single time because, you know, sometimes they will, sometimes they won't, but at least we tried, at least we gave them every opportunity. Um, and I know we talked about this off screen a little bit prior to, but I want to show this uh, picture. So this is from uh, Muncie, Indiana, back in 2015. And this is uh, Tom and Pam Price called 911 and said that they were trapped in the house. And when fire department arrived, they had what they considered to be a fully involved house fire. Um, they tried to get inside. They couldn't. They backed out. They made a defensive attack. Uh, and it was 38 minutes, between 35 and 38 minutes afterwards, uh, they found Tom and Pam in the bathroom with the door shut, and they were still alive, completely unharmed, uh, and they the victims walked out. So, you know, to sit there and say that, you know, what we see when we get there and what we have doesn't mean that we're going to stop. I have every faith and I hope that the fire department truly could not go any further into that building Um to try to stop that fire and get to those victims. So they made the difficult decision to back out, knock it down as much as they could. And then they went back inside and they found them in the bathroom alive. That's a win. But even had they gone and done everything that they could and Tom and Pam would not have survived, they still would have been doing everything that they possibly could. The issue that I have is when people pull up and look at this picture and go, oh, everybody inside's dead. And that's it. And then they just go into defensive mode and they don't even give it a second thought. Now, and, and here's the problem with that. Okay, this is a one-sided, right? So pulling up to that, a lot of people are going to say, we're on scene, uh, be advised, we have a fully involved two-story residential, whatever. And then they're just going to go to work. And they may not even do a 360 because, oh, there's such a large amount of fire, right? But then what happens when you don't do the 360 and somewhere during that time, somebody makes it around the backside and realizes that there's an addition that's been put onto that house or there's something different that they didn't initially see. And they go, Oh man, now it's sheer panic mode because, Oh, and you're going to dump firefighters into there and you may find a victim and what's going to be hectic, right? Everyone's going to be like, Oh my God, blah, 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 blah. Point I'm getting at is when you can walk away from an incident and and say, I did everything that I could. I gave it all of my best effort, 100%, and that not be total hogwash, then you did your job, okay? The worst thing you can do is be sitting around the firehouse table looking at everybody and saying, hey, man, um, you saw what I saw, right? There's no way we could have done that, right? Uh, you know, you're, now you're you're seeking validation for things because that's that's an omission of guilt. You're guilty. You feel bad because you realized in your mind that you did not do everything you could. But now 
you want to try and, and feel better about it by having some sort of validation from everybody else to pat you on the back and say, yeah, man, don't worry about it. You did. So I say that to say that, um, you know, the risks that scare people and the risks that kill people are very different. That it's Peter Sandman said that. And then, um, you know, a lot of people seek security in things, right? And, and that's the problem is when you seek security instead of opportunity, then I have to question if you did actually do everything that you said you were going to do. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I pride myself on being an aggressive fireman and I hang out with some of the most aggressive firefighters I know. And that term aggressive is not a bad thing. Okay. That term aggressive is like, I will make sure that I do everything in my power to get to you or to mitigate your emergency. Right. Now I'm looking for opportunity all the time, looking for opportunity, any, any opportunity I can to get in that house and go do that. Right. Cause that's what they expect us to do. And, and anybody who was, was fortunate enough to watch Cody Trestrail uh, the other day at H rock got to see his lecture where he asked random people in the street, what do you think a firefighter is? Like three, three quick questions. Like what does the fire department do? What do you think a firefighter is? And, and I can't remember the last question he asked, but alarmingly majority of them all said the same thing right that you're going to show up you're going to put water on the fire and you're going to come save them period so that is our public's expectation whether we like it or not that's what we said we would do that's what they're paying us to do whether you're career volunteer part-time paid on call whatever their taxpayers dollars go for you not to make judgments on their life based off of your opinion but to give them every chance of survival that you can in a situation that they can't get themselves out of. It's that simple. Oh, absolutely. Well, and it's funny. Uh, and the reason why I was kind of chuckling when you were talking is because it made me think of something, you know, I, I worked for a chief officer probably seven or eight years ago, but uh, this guy was so, I mean, he was scared of his own shadow. You know, I mean, it was just every single time we're in a fire, uh, you know, Hey guys, there's, there's fire coming through the roof. Okay, we're we're on the first floor. We're doing a search. We're good. And he's like, "Well, there's a lot of fire. You guys got to hurry up." Okay, yeah, no, I get that. Um, and so every time we would go in and do a search on a house that had not been confirmed searched, uh, he would just lose his mind. And so you know, a lot of times what we were doing, and and we didn't announce it over the radio, but I mean, it was like, "Hey guys, do you hear that?" And they're like, "Oh, is that somebody yelling for help?" yeah, I think I hear somebody yelling for help, you know, so we'd go into our search and <laughs> it was, I mean, as funny as it sounds, it's like, that's the stupidity that we had to deal with. But there were so many times where we went in and we got a search done and we did what we were supposed to do because in the event that we found somebody in that house, that is exactly what they expect. And, and I've said this before to you and I've said it uh, to a lot of people, if there is one foot of survivable space in a house, I'm going to search every inch of that one foot. If there's 50 feet of survivable space, that's even better. But I still go back to that is what the public expects. And I love what Cody did. I love, I wish I could have seen that. I didn't get to see that uh, uh, deal. But in conversations that I've had with citizens, that is absolutely the trust that they put on us is that when they call 911, we're going to show up, we're going to fix their problem. So um, 
you know, for those people that have been had their hands tied, I've been there too. Um, you know, it, it has definitely turned into one of those things where, God, there's so many times I've been on the second floor and I'm just finishing up getting to the top of the stairwell. And they're like, Dave, we got to get your crew out. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? And they're like, well, we need you to come out because, uh, you know, water supply is getting a little scarce and we got to figure out what we're going to do. I'm like, I'm sorry, you're, you're, I can't understand you. It's uh, the radio's really staticky. Can you repeat? <laughs> and, you know, as we're crawling down the hallway, because no, I'm not going to stop my search. I understand what you're saying. I get what you're saying. But my ability to get down that hallway and finish my 25 feet of search is worth it to me. Um, yeah. That's sure. probably why there's a lot of chiefs that don't like me for that. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I don't really care about popularity. I'm just going to say it. Like, I think ability is of greater importance than popularity. Is it important to be liked? Sure. Everybody wants to be liked, but you know what? I'd rather, I'd rather be disliked knowing that I'm doing the right thing than imitate for convenience. I mean, that's just reality. Um <laughs> I don't, I put myself in situations on fires that I was comfortable in that everybody else was freaking out on too. I mean, you're sitting there and, and you got somebody on the outside flowing water through a window, just kind of like doing their thing, folks on the fire. And I look in, I'm like, man, this is all clear. And nobody's even searched this. I'm, I'm going in the window. Hey, where are you going, Superman? I'm going to do the search that I'm supposed to be doing right now. You know, like, hey, have I gotten some, some crap for that? Sure, I have. But, you know, at the end of the day, and I know I probably shouldn't say this because I'm not trying to advocate anybody to be reckless. At the end of the day, if I know that's a space I can occupy and there's a search to be made, I'm, I'm going. And we can hash that out later. And I'm not saying that I'm just going to go like um, kind of like meander around and, 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 and get myself lost and, and freelance. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is when you know for sure that that's a space that you can occupy, I don't know if I can live with myself if I chose not to occupy that in fear of retaliation, like getting in trouble. I, I just can't. I'd rather, I'd rather be unemployed knowing that I did everything I could do to try and save a life than to go my entire career after I find a body in overhaul knowing that I had an opportunity to occupy that space and I chose not to because I didn't want to deal with the politics. Right. Um, and I think that's what where a lot of decisions are made is fear. They're afraid of doing the wrong thing, even if it's the right thing to do. In somebody's eyes, it might be wrong. And they're afraid of of getting in trouble. And I've always operated off the, the aspect of, hey, man, think what you want to think. We're not going to all agree. That's life. But if I can fully explain why I did something and it makes sense. And then I can defend that the actions I did either A, saved a life or B, gave somebody the chance, the greatest chance of survival that they could have, then I'm fine with that, you know, and, and, and that's just going to have to be where it stands. And, um, you know, we say this all the time, we're after fact-based decision-making, not fear-based, Right. If you tell me something and I ask why, I expect an answer and I expect a good one. Because if you ask me why I made the decisions that I made, I'm going to show you so much information of where I can back up my actions and why they're the most um, uh, up-to-date and, and effective options to be implementing that you're going to be hard-pressed to find holes in my story. But I'll sure as hell poke holes in yours 
you know, and, and that's just kind of a thing. Going back to Mike Galliano, he says it beautifully. And I don't know exactly word for word what he says, but whatever your evaluation of those spaces are, you will live with the consequences of that for the rest of your life. Okay, so if you choose to sit outside and call it fully involved or you do the risk versus benefit analysis and you're wrong and there's a body, you're going to live with that. And that's just not something I'm comfortable with. I'm, I'm, I don't want that on my, on my shoulders for the rest of my life. You know, so I, I would urge other people to think the same way is, you know, by no means is anybody who's pushing search or, or you know, aggressive interior attacks or any of that stuff. By no means are we telling you to disregard your safety or the safety of others, but we're telling you to be intelligently aggressive. Yeah. Well, and there, okay. So first off, I, I just want to say this, uh, my answer to that question, uh, if it was posed to me would be very simple. Uh, Danny and Eli would go. So I did too. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, got, hey, there you go. I got the stickers to prove it. Right. <laughs> But that's the thing, though, is that, you know, and, and, and you know, I've talked to Danny uh, Dwyer and, and we've had that conversation um, and the, the whole thing with Eli, who's the seven year old kid who went in and, and saved his uh, sister, I believe. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those are two amazing stories. And, you know, the Danny thing is a completely different side story. And I hope at some point I can have them on this podcast. It would be awesome. But, you know, when we talk about the ability to go in and do your job and live with the ramifications of the choices you make. I have been on fires and I'm sure you have too, where there are people who are reluctant to go further down that hallway. Um, and, and, and it is not anything on them for whatever reason, it's outside of their comfort zone. Um, you know, even before I was a company officer as a firefighter or a senior firefighter, Hey man, move off to the right a little bit. Let me get down that hall right? It's no different than law enforcement or the military. There are people who will vapor lock and they, for whatever reason, they just can't move further in that battle. Uh, and there are other people who will go past them and finish up that job. It doesn't make them any less of a person. Um, but I think it's so important that we have that understanding that if there is someone who feels like they can get into that survivable space, allow them to. And I make the joke all the time, but you know, these fire chiefs that allow us to, you know, drive these million dollar fire trucks and dive in windows in houses that are on fire, but they don't trust us to adjust the thermostat. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's right? true. And so, yeah. you know, I'm fortunate. I mean, I've worked for a lot of chiefs that will allow me to make those decisions. And it's not a question on scene. It's not a question in the moment. Hey, chief, I got a window I can get into. I'm going to dive in and do a vent inner search. Okay, Dave, let me know when you come back out. Okay, cool. Now I've worked for other chiefs where I get the, you know, negative, negative, negative. And all that does is breeds frustration and anger. Because if I know that I can get in there and I can get into that survivable space, now my crew and I are just standing there with our thumbs up our rears. And what if there was a victim in there? Thank God there hasn't been. But what if there was? You know, and that's well, not a feeling that you want to have. That's not a feeling you want to have. And <clears throat> here's what I urge everybody. Like the internet is both a wonderful and terrible place, right? You can have some of the most like positive, informative conversations. You can also have some of the most stressful and argumentative conversations. But the one thing you can't ignore is that we have mass information at our fingertips, right? U.S. Fire Administration is one of the best things because uh, if you don't want to hear it from me or you don't want to hear it from anybody else, then look it up. 
you can literally print off every year or every time they put out a release for their studies and findings for the year with firefighter fatalities and, and, you know, where our fires are occurring and all those things, you can read that that's free. One of the things you can do on there is search for data like line of duty debts. So if we're going to argue this risk versus benefit analysis, and we're going to argue survivability profiling, and we're going to say things like it's dangerous and whatever, understand that I am so sick and tired of hearing, we kill 100 firefighters a year. No, we don't. No, we don't. Is there 100 line of duty deaths or more? Probably, yeah. But one, you have the Hometown Heroes Act, which is covered by anybody who like commits suicide, or not commits suicide, um, somebody who's like dies without, uh, within 24 hours of their shift. Whatever right, they, they went to a training and then they went home and had a heart attack. And right, or they got off shift and, and they had a heart attack or something like that. But when you look at it, like a lot of it's cardiac, right? A lot of, some of it's med, a lot of it's medical emergencies. Some of it's driving, like it breaks it all down for you. If you go in there and you add the filters and you put it in there and you say residential structure fires, search and rescue, and you pull it up, it was three last time I checked. And that was before we lost those two firefighters in the, in the house fire not too long ago while they were doing search. I will say that that's five out of the hundred we claim every year. So let's make sure that we're telling people the right things. Okay. And if you want to go even further with that U.S. Fire Administration, I mean, you could break it down to, oh, this guy was on a hand line, but it will actually tell you what he died from. And some of it would be like heat stress or stroke or overexertion. So it wasn't the act of fighting the fire like the, the hand line. Okay. Right. It, it was something other medically that caused that. And this isn't to discredit anything or, or, you know, say that their lives, um, you know, shouldn't be recognized. What, what I'm just urging people to do is, is understand the real information that's out there. You want to tell firefighters, you can't search. It's too dangerous. Don't go in there or whatever. But then the data clearly shows that statistically the most dangerous thing that we could be doing right now is eating firehouse food. That's right. full of fats. And it's going to give me a cardiac event. <laughs> you know, like, come on now. Let's be honest with ourselves. And the second part of that is we always put emphasis on the, the firefighting stuff. Oh, stretching hand lines and searching and this ventilating roofs and everything that people don't want to do because they're just lazy and they don't want to train or they're scared to do it. When do we get the right to turn that back around and say, okay, cool. So when we break down this data uh, out of this hundred, you know, uh, and I don't know if this number is correct. We'll just throw a number out there. But out of this 100, 40 firefighters died from, from cardiac events. So maybe the real problem is that we're not fit for duty. Maybe the real problem is that you need to stop eating junk food and exercising more. And we'll see those numbers going down because it's clearly not the, the actions of us doing our jobs that are killing the most firefighters. It's actually the inactions of us staying fit and eating healthy and staying mentally fit as well as physically fit and all of these other things, you know, driving with your seatbelt on, not driving like, like an idiot, all of those things is what's killing the most firefighters. How, how do you really feel about it? Well, I don't know if I could be any more direct than that. <laughs> so, and, and, and listen, you know, when Anthony sent me this, this question and you were the first person that popped into my head, cause I was like, you know what, this is going to be about as blunt as any conversation you could have, but, but this <laughs> is the conversation that needs to happen. And, and I think it's so, 
important, like you said, you know, not to discredit the firefighters who died for other reasons, but it's, it's not, un, uh, it's not unlike when people were talking about being on the roof, you know, ventilation, vertical ventilation is so dangerous, so dangerous, tons of people die. Okay. Tell me how many people died doing vertical ventilation. Oh, at that time when I was having that argument, it was zero. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go with no on that one. Now, is it dangerous? Yes. Can you have a cardiac event while you're on the roof? Yeah. Can you slip and slide off the roof? Absolutely. There is inherent risk. But one of the things uh, that, you know, Dave Woodward, uh, who does the revolutionary fire tactics at the lake, him and I had a very philosophical conversation one time. Uh, and I was explaining to him that my nine-year-old and my seven-year-old boys and my wife and my mother and my sister and, and pretty much everybody in my family who is immediate, um, I have had the same conversation with. I am okay with being significantly injured or dying if I am risking my life trying to save another person's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you've probably had that same conversation. Yeah. And And it's one of those times where you can't hold back. Like my sons understand that the chances of me being put in that position are very slim and the cha- and I've shown them the data of this is, you know, how many firefighters die doing these types of activities. But what I told them was if I'm doing something to save someone else's life and I get injured or I die, I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is being hurt or killed because somebody's doing something stupid. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, they, they fully understand that. And so I think it's so important for us to, have that principle and build that into our culture that, Hey, listen, if you're not okay with that, if you're, if you're in a situation where you're like, okay, dude, this is my limit. I'm starting to see my life flash before my eyes. I can't go any further. Okay. We'll talk about that later. But if that's not my limit, then let me continue doing my job. Let me keep going that extra further step because that might be the extra step that saves that victim. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I mean, I don't know how much time we have left, but there's a couple of things I just want to add to that because I feel they're important and they need to be said. Um, one, proper training. Okay. So what I mean by proper training is don't just put your bunker gear on when it's time to go run that call. Like we should be comfortable in that. We should be as comfortable in that as we are in our station uniforms, right? Like it's bulky, it's heavy, it's hot. Like you're not going to escape that, but it's just like anything else, right? The more you acclimate yourself to it, the more you, you are, are able to, to um, understand like the stress that it's going to give on your body, the more you can navigate around that. The second thing is hydration, man. Like you have to stay hydrated. You know, like people will go out drinking the night before or whatever and show up for work and they're not properly hydrated. And then they get a, uh, a call where they're going to have to be in their gear. And next thing you know, you have a heat emergency, right? So it's really like, hey, if we're going to talk about training and physical fitness, that's cool too. But don't discount coffee. <laughs> don't, don't discount the fact that, you know, you have to be in your gear. And, and that's benefit to you. It really is. It's a benefit to you because you know how to, how it's going to respond. It is our most restricting environment, hands down. Okay. I think that's more restricting to us than the fire itself, to be honest. And then you do what? Like people will get into like these, they, they read Facebook and they, they look at these YouTubes. Oh, that's a cool tool. I'm going to put it in my gear. And they, they add all this weight, which is all fine. I have tools in my gear too but I literally wear my gear every day and I train in my gear. So I'm accustomed to that weight. So it's not a surprise to me. 
when I'm giving a task and I'm carrying extra weight around, right? The, the point I'm getting at is when we talk about like training and all this other stuff, like working out in, in gear, the other side of realistic training is providing realistic situations, not just fire academy fires where like we're taking people in to get them accustomed to, to what fire behavior is. I'm talking about like, make sure you create to the best of your ability, the most realistic scenarios, whether that be live fire or smoke machines or what, whatever you have to use to, to uh, like facilitate that training. It needs to be real and do yourself a favor schedule yourself and put yourself outside of your comfort zone and go to places like FDTN, you know, and, and take those classes, which will like hammer you. Right. And, and, and you'll, that'll humble you real quick. The problem we kid ourselves with is that we don't provide that real training and then we pass it off as good enough. Right. And it's not. Okay. So if we can understand that one being acclimated to our gear and exercising and being, being accustomed to that environment and then providing realistic training, maybe a down firefighter scenario, uh, getting, you know, breathing techniques, you turn your air bottle off so you don't panic and rip your mask off. Whatever the situation is, wherever you feel like training, make sure that, that it has value. Cause I'm going to tell you right now, if you're just going through the paces to log training hours and you're like, okay, and you give half-ass training, you're going to get half-ass results. There's zero value in that to you or the citizens. So, you know, this job's not hard, uh, you know, and, and I have to question, like, if you don't have a passion for it, then why are you still here? You know, obviously something brought you to it to begin with, right? You, you had a desire to want to do this and, and help people and, and, and do all these things that, you know, everybody's doing, but somewhere along the way, you decided that's not for you anymore. Well, you're cheating the citizens. You're cheating them out of money every time you cash that paycheck because you know damn well you're not doing what you said you were going to do. Yep, and yep. you're cheating them out of any opportunity for surviving a situation that they might actually need you for because you're not properly equipped and you're not properly trained. No, I couldn't say it any better myself. And, you know, I I, I wasn't going to say this, but I will. So. We, <laughs> We did a training. Uh, this was uh, a couple months ago, and I and and I got a comment from one of the students during the. And I'm not going to name drop him, but uh, during the class, the student said, "You know, oh man, we're going to do basement attacks. We just did basement attacks." And I said, "Okay, that's fine. You know, if you don't want to do it, don't do it." He goes, "Nah," I said, "I, you know, it's always good to do it again." And uh, what they had done basement attacks on was the. Uh, mobile training trailer that runs on gas and it's got the little <laughs> stairs that pop up. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so when we did our scenario, it was OSB and, and uh, pallets and straw. And we had a fire at the end of a 40 foot Connex box that went down the run of the hallway and then up the stairs. And so uh, we had one of our instructors at the top of the stairs and we were in good radio contact. He kept saying, Hey man, it's, uh, it's getting a little cheesy up here, which that's usually our code for like, okay, we probably ought to put the students in there. Uh, and, and so he got to the point where he was like, all right, you know, uh, safety team, go ahead and hit it down the end of the hall. And they did, uh, they gave it a, a quick, you know, two, three second hit. When this guy got into the top of the stairwell, 
he afterwards came up to me and he's like, man, he goes, I, I didn't want to go down those stairs. I, I absolutely, every part of my body was saying, don't go down those stairs. It is effing <laughs> hot. Right. right. Uh, and yeah. the instructor just leaned over and he just whispered, Hey man, uh, open up the line and it'll get better. And the guy was like, okay. So he did. And the fire started getting better and they made their way down the hall, uh, down the stairs rather, and then down the hall and they actually put the fire out. And it was so awesome to hear his take on, okay, if I had never gone through that, I would have never had a realistic expectation of how absolutely hot those fires can get, you know, his idea and his concept of what a basement fire was, was not at all what a basement fire was. And we've all been there. I mean, we've been at the top of the stairs, like, man, I ain't going down there. Like, give me a line, hit it from the outside of the window, and then we'll go downstairs. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, that, that brings it back to this too, like back to gear. If you know what your gear can take, that should tell you something, right? If I'm crawling a hallway and it's super hot and I've never trained in my gear and I've never really been in a fire that hot before, my natural instinct is to want to go, oh, it's hot. Let's go. Right. But if I consistently train in an environment where I'm putting my gear through the paces, right, and I'm, I'm accustomed to taking heat and I know, okay, this is hot, but I can push further and I know when it's time to go, like truly know, like, okay, my gear cannot take this. I know that. And you're more successful, right? Because like you're talking about, I know, you know, maybe I can go another 20 feet or maybe I can go another 30 feet. Sometimes when you talk to people who have made grabs and you listen to what they say, intense heat, I felt like my skin was burning through my gear. And you know what? The normal person who's not accustomed to that, who doesn't know what their gear can take because they've never trained it to that capacity might've left. But they chose to stay, and what they when they chose to stay and push just a little bit further because they know they could, they have a grab, and guess what? How are you going to argue with that? So people are going to say, oh, that was reckless and dangerous, but I'm going to say the opposite. If you don't know what your gear can take and, and a 300-degree fire is hot to you and you want to bail out, you're a coward. Just going to say it. I, I'm sorry. Okay. We have the most like impressive PPE that we have ever had in our fire service, and it just continues to get better. But yet, we still have the mindset of, oh, it's hot, I'm going to leave. Right. And granted, I get it. There is a time to, to pull that lever and say, I got to get out of here. This is just too much. But if you've never put yourself in a position that's even remotely close to that, or you're not going to fires and you're not doing any of this stuff, then you don't truly know where that line is. Right. That's where realistic fire training and being comfortable in your gear and doing all these things and train like you play, right? Or train like you're going to perform, I should say, would be a better analogy. You, no question in your mind, I can make this happen. And I've seen it even in trainings and it drives me crazy. Like the fire's not even that hot. I got the thermometer and I'm looking, I'm like, oh, it's like 450 degrees. And, and these people are like, spray it down. It's too hot. I'm like, no, push a little further and dump into that room that's over there that you're supposed to search and, and close the door. Yeah. And it'll get better. I, I guarantee you, you're going to feel like you just turn on the AC but you're willing to quit before you even push to the spot where the victim is. And when you close that door, man, that heat just kind of go away, you know, and, and I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up before we close it out to, to talk about like the searching 
it's really important that we isolate spaces, right? Super important that we do that. And when you close the door behind you in a room when you're searching, when you come across a window, open it up or take it out, okay? Governor Island study proved that there's little to no impact on the fire behind a closed door when you take a window. That is better for you and your searching ability. That is better for the victim that's in there, or God forbid you miss the victim and they are found on the secondary, then we just severely, severely decrease their exposure duration and time, right? Because that room's constantly ventilating. It would be in your best interest to do that in every single room you went in, except the fire room, right? Yeah, don't do that in the fire room. <laughs> understanding flow paths and how that and all that makes an impact on, on fire conditions, but understanding the, the impact of isolating a door. And if you happen to be going, to, making your way to a fire and you're on the hand line, like why, who says you can't be closing doors on the way? Yeah. You're going to come back this way or the search crew is going to search it Close those doors, steal those spaces. One, reduce the heat, increase the oxygen level, all that stuff. Just do it. And even in trainings, they're not doing it because yeah. it's not being taught because people aren't learning it and they're not understanding it. And that's really the problem that we have. So I think over time with all the people making this push for search culture, aggressive engine work and things like that, it's going to change and we'll see, we'll see a difference. But the one thing I want to point out to Anthony is he says he's on a truck company. Okay. Truck companies traditionally search without a hand line. Right. I mean, there it is right there. So what's, what's the excuse? Like, are you just, you pull up and you got to make a search or something like that. You just, you're just not going to do it. I, I yeah. mean, I don't get, I don't get that mindset of, of a search culture where a truck company shows up and doesn't do a search because there's no water on the fire. Sure. Well, and I, and I think too, and, and just to, to kind of wrap it up. So like with Anthony's question, you know, the, how do we feel about it? And I knew that your answers, uh, and I think we've been going for like two hours. So this is, Oh geez, man. Yeah. This is pretty impressive, man. I think this might be the longest podcast we've done, but, but it's good stuff, you know? And, and that's the thing though, is that, you know, the way that we view, uh, survivability profiling, we both agree it sucks. It's stupid. It doesn't do what everybody intended it to do because of the varying interpretations. If we had one, if they were teaching survivability profiling and they said, okay, step one, step two, step three, and it was all consistent, which it never will be, that would be great, but it can't be. Um, and then as far as the risk versus reward culture, I agree with you. You know, I think that, uh, you know, Anthony's whole thing about not looking at it as a risk, you know, as you said, uh, risk a lot to save a lot, risk a little to save a little, go in and do your job, go in there and put the fire out and save victims. And that's what we're there to do. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Couldn't say it any better, man. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, you know, I'll get I appreciate it. Get to see your smiling face again in July. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun down at revolutionary fire tactics at the lake. If you guys have not heard of that, uh, take a look. I think last year we had people from as far away as California and, uh, somewhere on the East coast, South Carolina. I think we had a couple of people. So, yeah. uh, Exit. yeah, definitely take a look. So, um, keep sending in the questions, keep sending in the stuff. Uh, how can people get a hold of you, Sean? What's uh, what's a good way to get a hold of you? Um, so my email, um, personal email, Duffy558 at gmail. Um, 
Facebook, send me a message, whatever. Um, I generally don't accept friends requests from people I don't know unless they know friends of mine. And then I'm like, okay, this is probably a person that will be all right. So send me a message. Um, if you've got a question, I'll respond there. And then if it's something that, that you absolutely need to want a actual phone conversation, again, send me a message. I'll give you my phone number and we can have that conversation too. Um, our Facebook page, build your culture. Um, you know, you can contact me on there as well, uh, with questions or comments, concerns, anything of that nature. And, and we try and do a good job of posting like what we're doing and where we're going to be, but I'm pretty terrible at that. Cause I just, <laughs> I don't know. There comes a point where like, it's good to advertise, but I don't want to advertise too much. Cause it, you know, I feel like it bores people. So, um, that's pretty much where you can find the information on anything uh, for me and, and get contact. Good, 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 good. Well, I, I appreciate you being on again. And for everybody else watching, listening, remember you can listen to our podcasts on all the major podcast platforms, uh, Apple, Google, Spotify. I think we just got added to uh, iHeartRadio. So that was cool. Um, but uh, definitely keep track of us on that. Uh, you can check out our YouTube page. And until the next time we talk, take care, be safe, and we'll talk to you soon.